question the voices of resin I hear Plastics. Plastics is an SP sponsored podcast. Good morning. Well, hello. Hi, I am Lindsay Nebel. And I am Mercedes Landazari. And with our powers combined, we are Plastics. Plastics. The voices of resin. That's us. And um, we are here this morning. Some of us might be in Europe, some of us might not be. TBD. Um, and we have a new guest. This guest was introduced to us by Connor Carlin, one of Lindsay's fellow executive board members. And uh, yes, so our guest today is Kara uh, Walton, from director for uh, Harbor Results. Well, I was going to say before that, we should really tell people uh, where we can listen to the podcast. Oh, right, right, that's, right. That's the part we were skipping, just just flying by. Um, they're, they're already probably listening to it. Well, maybe someone gave it to them. They don't know where it came from. The internet. The internet. Just find yeah. us on the internet or social media and that just, will be fine. Just do a search. Plastics, it's trademarked. But no, it is trademarked because we're cool. Um, but no, I in between plast and chicks. Just. But you can say it. You can pronounce it like that. We won't take offense. But we will yell at you. I think, Lindsay, I think this, before we just dive into it, this is typical of us. We introduce the guests and then just talk back, uh, talk about ourselves again. Um, <laughs> <laughs> welcome to the show. Uh, I think this might be the, and certainly when it airs, the um, last podcast before Antec. It is the last podcast before Antec. So um, Antec will be in Charlotte from June 13th through 16th, 14th through 16th, I think. Um, and we will both be there. We will be live June 15th. Um, we'll be doing a couple live episodes and we'll probably um, record a couple extra episodes so you get that live and techie feel. Um, and it'll be really great to actually do some interviews in person again. Yeah. And it'll be really great to just be alone in a bathroom again. Ah, God, you know, I've I missed love our my solitary time. bathroom time at these technical conferences. So good. So many snacks. <laughs> it's just a, a like a, it's just fortress of solitude there. It really is. It's just so nice to be in there. Um, <laughs> yes. Yeah, so if you are going to Antec and you hear this episode, please seek us out. We'll be there. We'll be the ones very loudly dressed. Um, we've already, we had, had, we already had conversations about this. Um, we'd be happy to talk to you, happy to meet up, happy to uh, take some shots for the gram. Oh, thought that was going someplace else. Oh. Welcome, oh, Kara. Uh, other shots too, but I'm specifically speaking social media at the moment because <laughs> it's 11 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> well, not in Europe. So. Not in Europe. So. <laughs> All right. Well, let's get on to the important part, which is our actual interview. Um, so as you mentioned, we have Kara Walton from Harbor Results. So um, Kara is really nice to meet you virtually. Um, and I'm sure we will meet up and do shots for the gram or other. Yeah, or okay. other shots. For- <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so first, just um, tell us about Harbor Results, because, you know, typically we have a lot of um, injection. We have like the, like the sciencey people as Mercedes, uh, sure indicates we have, we have the real, the real nerds on here and we, we have a different brand of nerd, uh, if you don't mind. And we, we want to hear all about it. 
Yeah. Um, so yeah, we're definitely, um, we're still nerds. A lot of us are still <laughs> engineers. Um, I personally am not, I am to your point, a different kind of nerd. I have degrees in economics. So, you know, still, still loving on the math. Um, but so basically Harbor Results as an organization, um, we do a lot of consulting and manufacturing benchmarking. Um, so we're based in Southfield, Michigan. We're a small company. We really only have about 20 people consistently working in our organization. Um, and what we do, right, and our goal as a company is to make North American manufacturing better. Um, we work a lot in the plastic injection molding space. A lot of our consultants come out of running molding facilities, right? Um, and then some come out of like stamping and die casting as well. So we kind of have two tiers of the business. On one side, we work more specifically kind of on shop floors, right? Understanding project management, launch of new programs, all that fun stuff. And then on the other side, we have more of kind of the information and benchmarking side and strategic side of the business, um, which is more of what I do. So I get to read a bunch of information all the time, look at a bunch of data from companies as we collect data and information each quarter, um, and then basically pontificate on what we think that means for the industry, right? And then ways to ways to help improve these businesses and help them get better. Um, so yeah, I guess it's a little bit different than kind of a standard molder um, that would come on for an interview like this, but we do, we spend most of our time in manufacturing facilities, right? So we're not, we're not just chilling at desks in some, I don't know, Silicon Valley or whatever. It's, it's Southfield, Michigan. It is a little different than um, California, but that's kind of the gist of what we do pretty consistently. And before you worked for Harbor, you were an intern at GE, a finance intern doing sourcing? Yeah. So I worked for GE um, Appliances before they were sold. I actually worked for them during the sale. Um, So the original sale, right, to, they were supposed to go to Electrolux first, and then that got blocked, and then they ended up going to hire. So I worked with them through both of those. Um, Super interesting time to be in a business. Um, So I worked for them before it and then during both those sales and then after for a little bit um, before graduating from the University of Louisville. So I went to school and simultaneously kind of did a lot of work for them from that perspective. So Sorry, go ahead. But no, I was going to say it's a, it was a great time to leave sourcing for sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I work with a lot of, I think actually I know a friend of yours, I work with some people at Polysource and some other organizations oh, that yeah. are kind of, kind of miserable right now. A lot of people are, uh, are pretty mad at them all the time, I guess, <laughs> most of the time. Um, so yeah, it was a good time to leave. I was pretty you know, going into consulting isn't necessarily that much better. Sometimes people are mad at us too, but it's, it's less so. Yeah. Uh, the sourcing alone. Um, I know I see it, it. I'm not directly in the plastics industry right now, but um, I, I've heard, you know, obviously. Well, you used what, to do sourcing in the plastics industry, though. Yes. And, you know, any industry is really not going to get away from plastics in general. And um, I've had a couple people be like, can you believe these, you know, this plastic component is taking this long? And I'm like, yeah, like the majority of that is just waiting for your material. <laughs> like, hate to break it to you. It's not anything to do with anything else, but really just your material getting there. Um, but I don't tell them that it just doesn't seem necessary. Um, but you said, you know, Harbor Results is really involved in like the industry helping out a lot of the manufacturers. Um, but you guys are also kind of closely tied into a lot of different um, societies like SPE who we're sponsored by, um, but also like Manufacturing Association of Plastics Processors, uh, North American Die Casting Association, Precision Metal Forming. Um, you know, I've seen you guys at some uh, Plastics Industry Association stuff as well. Um, so what kind of, 
you know, that's a lot of different types of societies across a very similar industry type. Um, what's kind of the similarities amongst these? You know, what are they all striving for? What's kind of what makes them stand out from each other? Um, do you have any insight on that? Yeah. So, I mean, I think kind of realistically for our organization, we're pretty like process agnostic, right? Which is why to your point, like we have all the different types of associations. Um, at the end of the day for us, like if someone's bringing something that's a raw material in one door and ultimately something that's at least somewhat of a finished good, right, is going out another door, then we're going to work with them. Um, we've gone as far as to work with a wood pellet manufacturer at one point in time, which was a little different for us. But again, a raw material coming in one door and then a finished good going out another. Um, so was, was, we, was, it, was it one of our friends? Was it a friend of the pod? Was it a Chad? Was his name Chad? Uh, I don't know. I didn't personally work with him. It was one of the consulting side. It might've been, I can figure that out. Um, but so basically within all of those associations, right, we, we kind of work with them to do the same thing in terms of benchmarking. Um, so across industries, right, our goal is to benchmark companies in kind of nine key areas. Um, so what we look at first is what's happening from a finance perspective, right? Obviously things like profitability and stuff like that, um, I think the intriguing part there and one of the key differences is we work in production and in tool building, right? So we also work for like the American Mold Builders Association and the Canadian Association of Mold Makers. They're all slightly different, but ostensibly the same thing. Um, so one of the intriguing things, right, from a financial perspective is that like a lot of the um, mold and die builders consistently will struggle a bit more to kind of string four good quarters of work together, right? Because building a tool is very different than obviously launching a program and then spitting out parts. Um, but then again, on the production side, whether they're die casting or stamping or molding those pretty consistently, once you get through product launch, there's a lot of similarities in the process, right? So we'll benchmark a lot of things around mold change time, whether it's for plastics or if it's a die change and things of that nature. We also do a lot in setup time, right? Which is across all those process processes too. Um, I will tell you probably one of the most exciting parts, um, and I might get yelled at by NADCA or PMA for this, um, is MAPS, so the Manufacturing Association of Plastics Processors, which is one of the associations that we do um, data and benchmarking for, is definitely the top performer. So in general, plastics processors um, outperform stampers and die casters. They're the most forward-looking of industries. Um, they have the most innovation. Frankly, they have the, the youngest average age. They're hiring the most young people who are coming up with like new interesting ideas for the businesses. Um, and that's really one of the key differences, which kind of makes our job a lot of fun working and molding quite a bit. Um, not that we don't love die casting and stamping, but that's probably one of the key differentials for you. Um, but I don't know if that answers your questions, but that's kind of that's where we can start. Well, what, so what has it been like since you're, it seems like your role, you're, you do a lot of benchmarking, right? So, yeah, so it's been like benchmarking during such a tumultuous time where everything feels very different. Is it actually different? Do the numbers tell a different story? Um, yeah. So I think there's a couple of things. One of the things that we learned most recently about benchmarking in a more tumultuous time is that you have to be way more cognizant of taking material and additional costs out of whatever you're looking at. So historically, right, prior to like 20, honestly, late 2020, early 2021, we could pretty consistently say, you know, about 40 to 50 percent of um, a total revenue number is going to be material content, right, for a mold builder or something like that. And that includes everything, right, not just present. Um, we can't do that anymore. So that was kind of the biggest thing that we learned really quickly when material pricing went up so high and frankly, everything else, right, freight costs, all of that. Um, we had to start looking much more specifically at the value add revenue pieces of it. Um, so the story 
frankly, a lot of the story is still the same, right? That there's still a lot of continuous improvement efforts happening and things like that. Um, but the biggest difference is that there's all this other stuff that these guys are up against now that historically they weren't having to deal with at the same level, right? So, I mean, it's like everything from material costs, which we brought up to like the cost of toilet paper was obviously skyrocketing for a period of time last year. So all of these things are things that they have to manage. You guys talked about sourcing. The big challenge right now is overhead, right? All these guys have a way more overhead because it takes like, I was talking to a molder yesterday who said it takes me two sourcing people now to get the same amount of work through my facility and they're doing it less well. He was like, it's not their fault. They're mm-hmm. just because of everything that's happening in the industry, they're still doing it less well than when he had one guy dealing with it before. Um, so I think that's kind of the key change, but a lot of the other data, right, where we look at HR, we look at turnover and things like that is pretty consistent, um, kind of pre-COVID, if you will, to today. Um, most of the metrics we track are still the same. Really? Even even turnover? Because we've we've heard, you know, more and more about the great resignation, but even turnover, those numbers are still uh, consistent? Yeah. So I should clarify that. Um, watching of the metrics is still consistent, right? So it's still a key metric to watch, but turnover numbers have absolutely increased. Um, so the biggest increases we've seen in turnover are more specifically in first 90 days. So there's a lot of, so there's kind of two buckets that at least we've seen the biggest amount of turnover for. We finished um, a wage and benefits study in December of last year. Um, and then we also work with MAP and these other associations to work with their data too. We've kind of seen the two biggest pockets of turnover for us recently have been in less than 90 days, right? So new people that you hire on who come on board and then the guy down the street says, I'll pay you two bucks more an hour, right? If you come work for me or I mean, I know for us in Michigan, right? Like they'll go work at Tim Hortons because Tim Hortons is offering like a $500 signing bonus. You work at a coffee shop and not work in manufacturing. But the other big area of turnover, which frankly, I think has challenged businesses more and has been more relevant recently is there's in a lot of cases, some senior level leaders or mid-level executives that are choosing to leave to go elsewhere. And that's really throwing a curveball into things, right? And I think that's more of where kind of this great resignation that's happening across all industries is hitting is hitting manufacturing specifically. Yeah, I mean, I know I have, um, I we're seeing the same thing, you know, Erie's very similar in that people are getting ridiculous bonuses. I mean, not ridiculous as in bad, but ridiculous as in, hey, I'd, I'd consider it too. Right. Um, yeah. You know, and they're getting bonuses, they're leaving manufacturing, um, you know, even within the Erie area, we have a lot of injection molding companies and everybody's looking for people to hire. And it's just, it's just really just shifting around because there's no new people coming in. It's just which place can offer you better benefits at the time. Um, And, you know, this kind of touches on something that's a sore subject for everyone is, you know, shouldn't we be looking at more millennials, more Gen Z, like what kind of influence should they really have on the industry? And what are we kind of doing that's missing the boat with those groups? Yeah, that's so that's been an interesting question. question. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a big one, but it's one that comes up a lot lately, right? I I think the I guess to look at it positively first off, right? I think the exciting part is that like a couple years ago I would hear the question be like, well, what are we gonna do with these damn millennials, right? Versus now the question is like, okay, we get it, like they're here to stay, clearly, because <laughs> they're the largest generation in history. And then the next largest one is obviously Gen Z is coming in behind them. Um So like, how are we going to work with them? Right. So I do think like that evolution initially has been exciting, at least for me as a millennial, it's been cool to kind of change the rhetoric associated with it. Um, 
but it still doesn't mean that we've figured it out, right? I the the biggest challenge I think we have is that if we as a manufacturing industry aren't getting these guys right out of high school and right out of college, we're probably never going to get them. Um, and the reason why I say that is because, like, I, I mean, I know when I was looking for jobs and I was graduating school, right? Like. At that point, if someone had offered me a job to go live in San Francisco and be able to afford to live in a tiny studio apartment, but I don't know, do whatever cool San Francisco stuff people do, I might have done it at 21, right? I would have thought that was awesome. And then if I had stuck in that realm in leisure and hospitality or in tech for 10 years, it'd probably be a lot harder for someone to convince me to move to Detroit or move to Erie or wherever and work in manufacturing, right? But if we can get these people in the door right away, that's a little bit of a different situation. You realize, though, of course, that you're you're actually telling the story of my path to the industry. That I'm from San Francisco, originally and worked in hospitality really? in Chicago and started working. Yeah. So how did that work? Like, did I'm an outlier. How, how were you convinced? <laughs> we don't take her. Uh, into this you know, I was. Do not I count can, her in your next next survey. <laughs> yeah. No. Well, this is this interview is not about me. It's about you. But no, I I really think that uh, you know, growing up in San Francisco, where the the you know our biggest our biggest industry was was hospitality. My cousins and I all worked in the same hotel. And uh, I didn't think that anything was made in the United States. The first time I, I walked into a factory of any kind, it was um, I was doing uh, energy sales and walked into the back door of a plant and uh, saw fortune cookies being made on a conveyor belt. And I was just so smitten and just knew I had to get in, but didn't know how. I'm glad you found a way in that. But but <laughs> yeah. I think that's fair, right? I so. I mean, I, I think a lot of times it's just making people realize that there is a lot of stuff that's made here though, right? And that it's actually really interesting the way we make it. Like, I mean, I don't, even on the tooling perspective, right? I'm a I'm a big geek in tooling. I honestly love like mold manufacturing more than I love molding. Um, Lindsay's so happy right now. I know. I'm like, our listeners, like just the biggest smile you've ever seen on Lindsay's face. It's fine. Like, it's fine. Right Listen, I need someone else to like freak out about mold making with. Like, I just can't be by myself getting real excited. <laughs> yeah, it's literally so cool, though, because if you think about it, right? So even if you have people who, like, start to figure out that there's things that are molded in this country, right? Like, you have dashboards, you have, I don't know, washing machines, whatever the heck, all the stuff that has plastic in it. A lot of people still don't think about the fact that, like, you have to build a mold with, like a, that's, like, really intense. And you have to spread resin absolutely correctly. And you have to manage all this stuff that... The molder's not doing that. I mean, the mold builder's figuring all that out. When uh, um, when I first got into the plastics industry, you know, and started kind of like, you know, I'm, I'm in my classes and like telling my parents like, this is a gate and, you know, stuff like that. They'd be like, well, how do you make this? Well, why can't you just do this? Well, why can't you just do this? And I was like, oh, there's a lot that people like, obviously I am now being trained for this, but like, there's a lot of people totally just let fly by or just don't consider like you are actually taking steel, squishing it and you got to get it back out is the key. That's always the key for me. You can squish anything in, in steel. Getting it out is where you're really going to run into problems. Right. Yeah. And it's crazy. And like, they have to, I, I don't know. I'm yeah. I could talk about tool building specifically all day. Also on the dye side, it's awesome to look at dyes and like have, cause again, right. Like it's not resin, but you still have to, I mean, steel is steel, right? Like it's, right. it's not easy to, to put into a different shape. Like it doesn't happen very quickly. Right. So it's the same thing, right? The same way you have to deal with how you get resin back out or then get a part back out. You got to figure it out with steel. And it's just, and same thing with die cast mold building too, right? You got like, you're trying to figure out how to get zinc out of a mold. Like that's not easy to do. <laughs> um, I, I I know I just love it, but going back before we 
tangent too far off, which we will do. Um, going back to your point about like needing to introduce, you know, especially this upcoming like Gen Z, because they're like what, like 19-ish at the old end, I think. I think they're like yeah. teens. I think technically like the youngest year they were or the oldest year they were born is like 94, 93. Or no, I'm sorry, other way, 96, 97. Okay. Okay. So yeah. Um, but they're, you know, so a little bit younger even, but um the SPE Foundation has been starting to do like a lot of like after school STEM clubs. And I was just telling Mercedes about this and I actually just saw a post um this morning, but they uh, Sherika Sanders and in, in, down in Texas, she had a, um, a group that they're putting together. I think they call it like the lion's den plastics club or something adorable like that. And they gave the kids, uh, I think they're all sixth graders. They gave them all white coats and they brought them to, um, her facility and they broke them up into groups. Like each group was like red group, blue group, like black group. And I think like green group or something like that. And then they had them like compounding their own material in that color of their group. And then they had the kids like make little sales calls to a customer and like, oh, oh my goodness. And they had to like get the information and give it to like the, uh, one of the sales guys to like quote for them. And like these kids have just been exposed to like, I mean, very quickly, but like just a huge like gambit of what plastics manufacturing can be, not just like, oh, you're just a, like manufacturing or, or you, oh, you're just like doing this. The whole like a kind of a quick run of the basics. And like those kids probably would never have been exposed to that kind of stuff. Right. And it's stuff like that, that I think is real. I mean, you, yeah, they're not all become going to become plastics engineers or in the industry, but I bet you get a way higher percentage from that than you would have any other way. So it's stuff like just the basics of just exposing them. I feel like is step one, yeah. <laughs> maybe step okay. a, I don't know. So Kara, how did, how did you get exposed to the industry? You went to University of Louisville, which is like, there's a lot of manufacturing around there with, with P&G, with, um, with, with higher, right. With, with, with higher. Yeah. I think they still call it GE down here, honestly, but they probably should switch at some point. Um, yeah, so I guess I, I was one of those kids who did that when I was a child, right? A little bit differently. I, when I was younger, there weren't necessarily as many programs out there like that, um, which I think is exciting for the future. But uh, my dad is a career molder. So my dad has spent his whole life in injection molding in the automotive industry and the medical industry. So I was like the little, I don't know, six-year-old who would like go to the plant and like know which office off the plant floor had the lollipops and like that kind of kid. Um <laughs> which is also, they were, they have really great candy. Um, but the gist is right. So I, I kind of got my start then, um, understood manufacturing. So I was really interested in how things were made. Um, like I was the person who, when I bought my first car, like I wanted to know which tool shop actually like made the dash for it. Right. That kind of thing. Um, but, and then I think from there, I, when I was in high school and into college, I was really into economics and was that kind of nerd instead. Right. And for a while I thought I was going to go off the manufacturing path. Um, just because I really wanted to, I wanted to be a lobbyist. I wanted to work in DC and do all this cool government stuff. Um, and then I realized kind of the benefits of economics, and like understanding macro forces and manufacturing. So I kind of steered my way back into thinking about the benefits of how things are made and simultaneously how that kind of affects us here in North America. Right. Cause to your point, a lot of people aren't necessarily aware that a lot of things are still made here and they're made really well. And we should probably keep doing that. Um, so that's kind of how I, how I ended up here. Mm -hmm. the, you know, um, it, 
you know, preparing for, for this interview, we're, I was um, looking at, at your, your LinkedIn and, and seeing that, you know, your background is an economist. And it, it really struck me with your role at, at Harbor, where you're focused on benchmarking um, and really, really focused on the numbers. Numbers tell their own story, right? And I, I feel like we're at a point in, in this industry where um, we have a full gen- generational gap and we're in danger of losing a lot of tribal knowledge, right? Um, and a lot of the industry resol- revolves, I think, around around feeling, right? So it might be something where where numbers can really be the change maker in, in someone's mind. Do you has that been your experience, or there's a lot of yeah, yeah, yeah around our industry, right? So I think um, I think the benefit that we have with the data, right, is that. It's really hard to, and this is, I guess, like an old school term, right? But it's really hard to go in there and like tell someone their baby's ugly, right? Like we have a lot of people who have opened these facilities that like, and not that we're actually going to be trying to have pretty babies. And I'm getting wise when you listen later. <laughs> Very beautiful. <laughs> Um, they're getting, they're like opening these facilities, right. Or they opened them like 30, 40, 50 years ago. And now their kids or their grandkids are running them. And like, I mean, these are these people's babies, right? Like if they started this facility, like that is their, I mean, it's their blood, sweat and tears and probably a lot of their money. Um, so going into those businesses and telling them they're, they need to do better is really hard to do. Right. And they don't like hearing that. Um, but to your point, right. That, I mean, that's an emotion, right. It's a very, I mean, this is their livelihood. So the data has really helped us a lot to kind of go in with the mindset of saying, look, at the end of the day, my goal, our organization's goal is we want to make North American manufacturing as good as it can possibly be because we have to be realistic. It's a global marketplace. You've got a lot of external competition and factors, but we don't want to let you lose the capability to make things here and have your livelihood stay here. So let's talk about the data and information and remove as much of the emotion as we can, right? You can never remove all of it because it's still... I mean, it's important to these people, right? But remove at least some of it um, and then really utilize the data to kind of tell us where to start, right? And then it also removes like the individual from it too, which is a big thing, I think, in older generations and younger ones, right? I'm not going to look at Bob and say, Bob's not doing a good job. I don't I don't know anyone named Bob, but whoever, right? We know um, lots of Bobs. We know perfect. Maybe, maybe they're doing a great job. Maybe they're not. I mean, I don't. Bob, I don't John, or David, one of them. You could just go. <laughs> right. I do. I work with a lot of Davids. There's a lot of, I, like, all of my clients are named Dave. Um, but not all of them, but a lot of them. Um, but it, it lets you, like, not necessarily go, okay, so Bob's not doing a good job in purchasing, so we have to replace Bob, right? It's saying, no, maybe your purchasing department isn't functioning the way you want it to function, Let's talk about why that is. Are you understaffed? Have you had someone in that role who's never been formally trained? Um, do you do you have a succession plan there, right? Like if this person isn't doing very well and it's because they have one foot out the door and they're retiring in two years, do you know who's coming in after to run it and make it better? And I think, I don't know, the scary piece for us, right? And what keeps me up at night is in a lot of cases, the answer is no. We don't, I mean, we don't have people pegged to come in and take over roles in organizations. So that might've been a long-winded answer to your question, but that's kind of how we, attempt to use data to remove emotion and feeling from a lot of it. And two, I'm going to get off of Mercedes. I know she had a whole ream of philosophical questions, but I'm going (laughs) to, you know, and and, as always, (laughs) as always came prepared to go completely off topic. A hundred percent. So like kind of, you know, building on that, you're using the data to take the emotion out of it. And I think a topic that we've kind of 
started to discuss a lot more is diversity in this industry. And I think that's one that comes charged with a lot of emotion as well. Like what kind of data are you using? How is it being received? You know, um, what, what are your numbers telling us about the importance of diversity? Because I think a lot of people are using just their emotion versus data. And how often are you talking about it in conversations with, with the companies that you consult with? Yeah. So, um, so it comes up in almost every single conversation that we have with an organization, right? Um, the biggest place that it comes up is on the strategic planning front, right? So every single time we go into a company and we get um, the senior leaders in the room, right, to talk about strategic planning, first off, it almost always comes up in one of two uh, in one of two ways, right? The first way that it comes up is that we have ten people who all look identical sitting around the table. And then my boss, who's also a woman, and I walk in the door, right? So it comes up pretty quickly and pretty naturally when you're in that situation. Um, and then we talk about it intentionally because our biggest belief, and to your point, Lindsay, what, what the data shows us is that diversity of thought is going to help you solve problems better and solve them faster. It doesn't just mean you need that whole table to be young people, right? I'm not by no means suggesting that. You need both, right? So you need different genders, you need different ages, you need different races, you need people from different socioeconomic statuses, people from different backgrounds. And the reason why is because all the data shows us that if you get all those people around the table working to solve a problem, a common problem together, excuse me, that's the best way that you're going to solve it. Because one person's going to say, well, in my experience, um, I always had X happen in all the facilities that I ran. And this young person who's right out of college and, I don't know, only interned at GE, to use them as an example, right, um, is going to say, well, but why do you do it that way, right? And then you're going to have a better opportunity to learn and solve the problem. Um, and then you're going to have the same thing. I Like, I was driving to Louisville this morning, as I told you guys, for my friend's wedding tonight. It's very different from where I live currently in Baltimore, Maryland, and like the downtown city center versus like Huntington, West Virginia, where I spent the night last night. Having someone who lives in downtown Baltimore and having someone who lives in a town of like 30 people, I'm exaggerating a little bit, but you get the gist. That also, having those two people with those two different life experiences are also going to drive a better opportunity to solve problems more quickly. Um, so I think it comes up all the time. And I, I frankly think it's a good thing. Um, it is a challenging topic, right? So we do, we use a lot of data, right? We'll use a lot of uh, macro numbers that show you kind of the split of men and women in the workforce in the whole country, right? And then that split in manufacturing, it'll come as no surprise. There's many fewer women in manufacturing than there is in the overall workforce. Um, same thing with people of color, right? I think we're sitting at like, from our recent survey, which is more specifically kind of in the Midwest region, we're sitting at about 12% people of color in the business. And we have less than 5% of them sitting in leadership, leadership positions. So we kind of tried to also break it out by not only are you hiring diversely, but are you promoting these people? And are you allowing them to have that upward mobility that you might allow the guy that you've known for 30 years because you golf together, right? Or whatever the situation may be and giving that equality. So again, I'm not totally sure it answers your question, but at least it gets us closer. No, I, I mean, yeah, it's, it's very hard to see some people get caught up in that emotion of it and, and thinking that it's the, you know, the exclusion of people who have been there for a long time as opposed to what it really is, which is just the inclusion of additional people. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think, I think that's a, an opportunity that gets lost and caught up in, you know, people's emotions and, uh, misconceptions about it, as opposed to actually the performance of it. Mm -hmm. 
is there is there any like what are some of like the best approaches you've seen people take um to getting a more diverse group um any low-hanging fruit that's you know stuff you could be doing that wouldn't you know yeah. rock their world right away yes Tim just Hortons. check out Tim Hortons. Yeah, yeah, go to Tim Hortons, go through the drive-thru, <laughs> order a double-double. Yes. I don't, that's that a very that. Michigan thing. Um, double-double like and a, one ingenue to go. <laughs> there you go, yeah. Um, so yeah, I think there's a couple things that are really easy and then a couple things that are really easy to talk about and really hard to implement, right? So there's kind of both. Um, one of the easiest things that we've seen success with is if people don't already have their human resource manager or director sitting on their senior leadership team, they got to get that person up there immediately. Right. Um, so that's like the number one thing we see a lot of companies where the CFO will sit around in a senior leadership team and then the HR manager reports to the CFO. Fun fact, when the CFO is sitting around a senior leadership team, the CFO is talking about the financials of the business. They're not talking about human resources, which is their job. I'm not belittling the CFO, right? They need to be talking about finance. No, you, I mean, you're an economist. You, you, I you mean, would never belittle the CFO. Yeah. <laughs> no, yeah. I, I mean, I think, I think numbers are very important. And I think having cash is very important to run a business, right? So I think that guy should keep doing their job. But I also think that the human resource manager that in a lot of cases reports to the CFO should be sitting at that table to play the role of exactly what we're talking about, right? To, to talk about human resources, to talk about how we're hiring differently. Um, and it's a relatively, I mean, I guess it depends on your org structure, right? But it's not that hard to start at least getting that person included in those meetings. Um, that's probably the lowest piece of hanging fruit that we've seen companies do and then have almost immediate success with, at least in difference of thinking and things like that. Um, I guess the only piece that's lower than that is if you don't have an HR manager, you should <laughs> definitely get one of those. Which is not, is it seems like a laughable one, but I feel like there's so many companies where they're like, well, Bob, back to Bob, he's the HR guy. And you're like, doesn't Bob do sourcing? And you're like, but also HR. Yeah, but right. he does that too. Yeah, <laughs> right. yeah no, that, I mean, that was us a month ago, right? Uh, before, or right around the time we made our, our third acquisition. Um, no no HR department and, and um, you know, me and, and a couple of the other right hands to the owner, um, we are saying the next position that we need to hire for is, is HR. And we, and we take that approach. It's like the, you know, HR is, is, is the most right of all the hands, <laughs> you know, it needs to be the, the uh, very, very close to the, to the leader. Right. Yeah. We, and we've seen a lot of that too, right? There's a lot of people that, I mean, they, I think unfortunately they don't take HR very seriously, which is really challenging, right? Cause we're, especially for us as the consultants coming into the room as kind of the outsider, they're talking about all these challenges with not being able to get the program launched on time because they didn't have the people not being able to get the sales done because they didn't have the sales analyst, whatever. At the end of the day, the root of a lot of those problems is still labor, right? I mean, it's still, it's still asking the questions and figuring out which an HR manager needs to do. Are we developing these people? Are they meeting with their direct managers on a monthly basis? Are they getting the upward mobility they need? Are they getting the critical feedback they need? Especially like we talked about millennials and Gen Zers for a bit there. These guys need feedback way more often than like once a year in an annual review, right? I'm not suggesting it's because they're not good at their jobs. They're probably wildly good at their jobs. But generally speaking, as as these generations go, right, they want feedback more immediately. They don't want to wait till an annual review where their boss says, well, I'm not going to give you a raise this year. I'm only going to give you a cost of living adjustment because you did X eight months ago. That's not helping them develop and get better, right? So I think that's one of the biggest areas. Um, the other thing we've seen success with a lot of times is 
frankly, very bluntly looking at your own leadership team and identifying the next group of leaders and making sure that there's diversity in that group, right? I, and to your point about emotion, right? It's not a fun thing to do. I mean, it's not fun to look around a room and say, okay, we're all white guys over 50. But in a lot of cases, that's what's happening, right? So it's, and it's not necessarily your point saying, okay, Bob and Dave have to go. Of course not. But it's saying, okay, when Bob and Dave retire, as they deserve to do because they've worked their asses off for 40 years. Sorry, I probably shouldn't curse. Um, my bad. But after they've worked so long. Love it. Okay, perfect. Sorry. I curse I'm in Europe right now, so. That's right. So, I mean, they, they curse a lot in Europe, right? Yeah, maybe. Um, but so they've worked their asses off. They have to go retire, but then you have to hire the next person, right? And make sure that that person is a woman, is someone of color, is someone who also maybe didn't come out of manufacturing. I know that's like a wild card to bring up too, but maybe it's someone who came out of, I don't know, like if you want someone in customer service to be a head of sales, I would go hire the manager from the Marriott down the street. Like, I mean, all that kind of stuff. So I remember um, a long time ago, and I don't think it exists on the internet anymore. So that's why I feel comfortable talking about it. Um, I did this like advertisement for Pennsylvania, like it was for Penn State, but I was part of like this, you know, promotional come to Penn State thing. And John Boma, who was the head of the plastics department at the time, was um, he was in it as well. And I remember him saying, like, we don't just need like your science and math minded kids. We also need your artists. We need your. And that was Mm -hmm. the first time I think anyone had ever said, like, you don't have to be a STEM kid to be a STEM kid. And I think there's so much to be said for taking that diversity of thought and, you know, bringing in artists. Like, how are you going to get. We used to do a really cool project our senior year where we would take designs from some design school I think in Cleveland and we would take their designs and then figure out how to make them moldable. Oh, cool. They had these really awesome. beautiful, you know, whatever's they were, um, cause they were all different things, but like it was our responsibility to make sure they were moldable and discuss that with their design team to be like, yeah, this is a super cool thing, but it's non-functional and it's going to stick in the mold forever and you will make one. <laughs> and then you will have a boat anchor. Um, so I, I think that, you know, hiring people from outside of the industry for, uh, you know, other things is such a huge, huge asset that people don't look to. Yeah. I, I mean, I, that's the design thing is really important too. I, I mean, personally, right. My, my boyfriend just graduated grad school in a, with a graphic design degree last Monday, but a few days ago. Um, and basically, yeah, it was, yeah, it's exciting. Now we get to start paying off student loan debt. So it's, it's a cool Ooh. stage, um, but either way. So basically when he graduated, a big part of the conversation that they were having with all these keynote speakers was around like how we're using design and artists to solve a lot of other problems that may not otherwise be solved by the people who are quote unquote experts in it. Right. And it was intriguing to me. Like there was a woman who was talking about um, the housing crisis in New York city and how they brought in like a bunch of graduate student designers who basically their entire job was just to figure out like how to make things aesthetically pleasing. Right. And how that made a wild different difference in terms of solving some of the housing crisis, because they were thinking not just about what the people need, but also like what they want to see. Right. And how, and how they want their attention to be grabbed and how they want the information that's being shared with them to be designed. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's all stuff that I never thought about either, but it's, <laughs> well, I mean, I'm, I'm not an artist. I, I like, can't draw a picture, but it's yeah. really important. Yeah. It's, it's not, it's not great for me, but it's really important and really valuable. Um, 
And I think that's something that is, is definitely lost in a lot of businesses, right? When we only hire, when we only hire people who have an engineering degree, we're, we're hurting ourselves to only hire one type of person. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, I would advocate for that all day coming from a different, <laughs> different background. From the artist. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, um, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. I'm gonna let you go, Marcel. Oh, please do, please do. No, mine was come so, so, so far off topic. Go ahead. <laughs> well, I was actually gonna circle back because I know you have been doing um, a really big benchmarking project, and I, I wanted to hear a little bit about that. Um, yeah. So, so basically, what we're doing. Um, so, our organization started in 2010. In 2015, we launched uh, what we call Harbor IQ, which is technically what I'm the director of. Right, I oversee that side of the business. Um, And in 2015, the intention behind launching that was we had like buckets of data and we weren't using it. Like, cause we did all these assessments, we did all this different stuff, collected all this information. And we were introspective for a minute, right? And said, we have so much data information and we're not sharing it, obviously in an aggregate non-confidential way back out with with the industry to help them get better, right? We're just sitting on all this data, we're not utilizing it. So we started Harbor IQ in 2015 to allow us to better utilize that data and benchmark these companies um, individually, right? So what that means is that we benchmark them on profitability, on throughput, which is their value-added revenue per full-time equivalent. We benchmark them on things like turnover. We benchmark them on things like press uptime. We benchmark them on hit rates, everything, that all different types of metrics that are important to businesses. And then what we've done over the last year, which I will be honest, I personally have done a little bit of work on, but it's mostly the Harbor IQ team. I mean, they're impeccable and they put the bulk of the work into this. Um, What they've done, right, is they've taken this benchmarking out and we're doing it for associations now. So we do all of the benchmarking for all of the MAP members. That's the Association of Plastics Processors. We do all the benchmarking for all of the PMA members. So that's Precision Metal Forming Association. And then we also do all the benchmarking for the Die Casting Association, which you brought up. Um, And then we also still do all the benchmarking for the tooling industry on our own, right? So we benchmark both the U.S. and the Canadian tool market because they, frankly, compete directly with each other. Most A lot of the big mold shops sit in Windsor. Um, So what we're working on with that, right, is to... Uh, As we call it. Where? South Detroit. It's South Detroit. Yeah, exactly. South Detroit. (laughs) I mean, I can, like, I could throw a rock from my house in Detroit and, like, hit Canada. Not that I'd probably, like, the Border Patrol would be upset. Um, But so basically, right, what we've done with all of that data and information um, is gone out to the associations, not only benchmark specifically within the association. Um, So, for example, right, like a MAP member that's over $50 million and has four facilities and has a medium complexity level, right? So we'll rate them based off these key factors, right? Complexity is decided by number of resins they might have, by number of different molds they have, number of mold changes, number of customers, um, number of plants, right? All of these things. And then we'll benchmark them against other facilities that fit that same MO, right? So other over $50 million shops that have at least five facilities, call it and have similar complexity. And then it gives them the opportunity to understand how well they're performing without necessarily getting into the nitty gritty of someone else's business, right? I mean, these are all for-profit businesses. These guys obviously don't want to tell someone else their bread and butter and how they're doing what they're doing, but if they can share it with us and then we can give it back to people in an aggregate fashion, it's going to make the whole industry better. So that's what we're working on. Um, It's definitely a big undertaking, but it's really, we're really excited about it. Um, And we've, we've been doing it for, a year and a half now. And now we're in the process of putting everything into Power BI dashboard. So it's all dynamic um, and functional rather than static reporting. So 
that's the next step, which I'm sure um, my team is concerned about right now and <laughs> trying our best to figure out, but we're figuring it out over the next year and then we'll go from there. Very cool. Well, we don't have too much time left, but I wanted to ask, um, are there any metrics that you think uh, have been growing in importance? Hmm. It's a, it's another big question. That's a good one. Um, so I think there's a couple key things that have to be watched the most consistently. One of them we talked about a bit, which was value add revenue, um, especially right now, right. With all the external costs that are coming out. Um, a lot of shops are still looking at top line revenue growth. And frankly, it's not indicative of the truth um, because it's not actually looking at how much work you're putting through your facility. It's just looking at total number of dollars collected. Right. So really understanding that value add revenue. So taking materials and subcontracting and outsourcing out of that is probably one of the most important things. And to look at that trend, both on a monthly and an annual and even a weekly basis, depending on what business you're in. Right. Um, I think the other big things to watch right now are overhead costs. So overall, this like SG&A bucket is becoming terrifying in a lot of businesses, right? Uh, we're just putting a lot of things into this sell or sales general and administrative bucket, right? Um, I think it's important for us to watch that one more closely. The biggest, I think the other biggest metric that we have to watch more consistently that maybe we're not doing right now is a couple around the human resources side of things, right? So again, to kind of our prior conversation, not to rat hole us back into that, but it's much easier to report on actual data about how you're doing from a diversity and inclusion perspective than to just have a touchy-feely conversation about it, right? So what's the average age in your on your plant for? What's the average age in your leadership team? How many people of color do you have? How many women do you have? Um, how often are you hiring, right? What sources are you using to hire? Um, because maybe if you're only using LinkedIn, but you're not using Indeed and Monster and I don't know, whatever all the other ones are that are out there, then you're maybe not getting the whole pool. Um, what's your turnover rate? What's your onboarding process like? How often are you meeting with these people in the onboarding process? How often is your president meeting with these people in the onboarding process, right? We, frankly, we, have, we go into companies today that people start and they don't meet the president or someone from the senior leadership team for a month. I don't know about you guys, but I mean, if I did that, I, I wouldn't feel overly welcome in the organization, right? I wouldn't necessarily know what I was doing there. If I hadn't met anybody, depending on what my function or my department was, um, so I think those are some of the key metrics. There's, there's a bunch of them. I, there's probably more than I should even try to say, but those are some of the key ones that at least come to mind for me. Yeah. I mean, I think that's, I, I think a lot of that is, you're right. It's stuff that it's easier to look at the data than have the conversation about it. And so it's really nice to see that there are companies that are, you know, compiling the data and starting to talk about it and, you know, moving forward with this, um, this type of approach. Um, yeah, it's just, do you have any more philosophical questions, Mercedes? Well, um, no, just like a cheap shot. Is, are Orlando Bloom and Susan Sarandon going to be at the, uh, at the event that you're going to? Did anybody get that? Oh. Elizabeth town. Oh yeah. No. I, okay. Yeah. No, they're not. But um, I did, this is really dorky, but I did go to middle school with someone whose dad's brother was friends with Orlando Bloom's brother. They went, they, they played tennis together. So you are within six degrees of Orlando Bloom. Yes. So yes. that makes sense. currently <laughs> maybe within like 90 miles. No, I mean, not that he's in Elizabethtown, but I don't know, not that far away. <laughs> Just in case, just bring it up, just as a side note. Just, we'll put that actually as part of your title, yeah. Director Perfect. of Results 
also could you put that first actually like yeah. put the director of hardware is important got it yeah. <laughs> on it this is the priority <laughs> Well, Carol, thank you so much for taking the time um, on a on a Saturday for some of us in Europe um, to uh, chat with us. Uh, it's been delightful. I, I think you're the first economist that we've had on the pod. Yeah, you're a whole new branch here. That's why I'm a new brand and nerd. A whole new type of nerd. Yeah, it's, there's a lot of us out there, so I can I can give you some names. You can talk to and, uh, one. This will be FOMO when it's broadcasted. But are you going to be at uh, Injection Molding and Design? Uh, no, I will not be, unfortunately. Wait, is that the one next week? Yeah. The one in Detroit? Oh, yeah, I will be. I'm sorry. Oh, I forgot. I'll see you there. So uh, now I have yeah. to have FOMO. Sorry. I, I used to live in downtown Detroit, so I know a lot of really great places to go. Um, oh, cool. Yeah, Detroit was, Detroit's my, my jam. That's, I'm getting married there as well. It's my favorite place. I love downtown Detroit. I'm not getting married at the Molding Expo. That'd be fun. That'd be weird. Oh, getting married at the Renson? <laughs> No, but yes, I will be there. So I'll, I'll watch for you. Yeah. Likewise. Well, thanks so much. All right. I forgot All how right. we end our podcast. See you next time. <laughs> hey, thanks so much for listening to plastics. New episodes appear on the first Friday of every month. So either follow or subscribe to get those new episodes ASAP. Plastics, the Voices of Resin, is a plastics podcast sponsored by SPE, Inspiring Plastics Professionals. If you want to find out more about SPE, please visit for, like the number, spe.org. Oh, plastics.